0: excited that we're headed into fall. I get super excited for fall. I just love the idea of four seasons, even though I don't have them. Uh, You can't tell that it's fall here in Florida, but hey, at least when I'm scrolling on my phone or watching TV, I get to see some people in sweaters and some changing leaves and that just makes me super excited. I love the thought of coming down into quarter four and kind of I feel like it's just this time that we are able to go inward a little bit more. We're able to take some more breaks. Uh, We've got holidays coming up. Family really matters during this end of the year time and I know for a lot of people 2020 has been fast forward in slow motion at the same time, none of us know what 2021 is going to look like. So it's just kind of nice to be settling into quarter four, uh, this holiday season, this fall season. I know some people might be like, Rebecca, slow down. It's not holidays yet. But I'm really starting to feel like Sept you know, October is just a couple weeks away. And I have a couple more uh, big events that I have to do for my day job, for stable moments uh, that are happening in the next couple of weeks, and then I feel like we get to like slow down and it's just a really nice time of year when all of our big major events are done and we can kind of go inward and work on ourselves and rest a little bit. So really excited about that. I'm actually going to move right into our guest for today. So... I got this guest because on the Facebook group, somebody asked, you know, what's the role of the school in all of this? How can they help end the foster care crisis? What should the school be doing? How much can we expect of the school? So I went on to the Attachment and Trauma Network website and I found their school director. And she is Melissa Satan. She is a doctor of education. And she also has an adoptive son, that she got from an international adoption who taught her a lot about trauma and being trauma-informed and understanding kind of how education and being trauma-sensitive was so critical um, and how much it was lacking. So she actually will tell you about her background and how she created her own PhD so that she could help other schools be trauma-sensitive. But she uh, has done research on the perceptions of teachers working to create trauma-informed classrooms. She's a published author and has produced numerous webinars on which you guys can, can watch and they can be a resource to you on children with attachment and trauma in schools Currently, she works as an educational consultant and a developmental trauma expert providing professional development to school districts, municipal service providers, and parents. So she was the perfect person to talk to about this. And you will see that she is just so passionate about this. She's so giving of her time. And she has this ducks and lions approach to the classroom that you guys are just going to love. Here we go. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma. From foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. Well, thank you so much for joining the Stable Moments podcast. I actually, the re- I reached out to you because we had somebody, I do a, ask uh, my Facebook group for topics and I have not done anything on education and where education plays a role um, in the foster care crisis and education's huge, right? We see all the time that, you know, actually even right now during COVID, we're seeing less Um, allegations of abuse because teachers aren't having eyes on kids and more abuse is happening in the home. So we know how important school is. And so if you could just start by giving, introducing yourself and giving people a little bit about your background, that would be awesome.
1: Well, I got into uh, the trauma biz very organically. Uh, My husband and I found my son Theo in a Bulgarian orphanage when he was about three years old. We found him when he was two, had him here when he was three. Um, and uh, at that point, I already had my first master's degree. I was a special education teacher, and my wheelhouse was behavior modification. I could set up classroom and individual systems, and I was a true believer. Um, the only problem is that that doesn't work for kids with trauma, and I didn't, nobody knew that even back then. Um, but I mm-hmm. found by doing and, you know, be, luckily being a teacher and being able to follow what my son was doing in response to my interventions taught me a lot about what to continue to do and what stop doing. As a teacher, as a special ed teacher specifically, I, I had um, a pattern of that that really, I think, helped us out a lot. And then I found a few people along the way, tiny little voices in the woods really back then. This was 20 years ago. My son's 22 now. Uh, and um, then found more and more people until I finally, you know, I got my second master's. I was an administrator, so I've been a special ed teacher and everything. I started high school, went all the way down to second grade, um, administrator of a public school and I was the principal of an alternative placement school for kids, an entire school of kids with behavioral challenges. Almost 90% of them were adopted or in the foster care system. Um, But Mm -hmm. that's not a coincidence, and I assure you, it's not. Uh, And so then back to um, a a public, traditional public school. um, And then, um, you know, the world exploded with information with Dr. Anda and Dr. Filetti's ACEs survey. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, "I, I really want to know deeply more about how this impacts schools and I guess it finally culminated with um, my doctorate in developmental trauma in schools, creating a doctorate called that. Thankfully, my university was willing to do that oh. because they understood um, that it was a growing field. And now, of course, I end up being the content expert every time somebody comes back to that university and gets this degree. Oh, you should talk to Melissa. She was the first one. So I, I ended up, it's okay, though. I, I, I'm happy to help anybody else up that very steep and arduous ladder. So then, uh, meanwhile, healing my son, learning a lot, learning a lot, working with great teachers who were trying these things in schools, so it's not just kids who are adopted or in foster care, um, and then learning about the brain science
0: and writing books. And here I am.: That is incredible. So just to go back to the basics and to give everybody like the landscape, the current landscape, what is the role? Of the school in children with trauma, I mean, I know that there are there's been different developments over the years with children with behavioral issues and how we deal with children with developmental disabilities. Um, so what's the school's role when there's a child that is experiencing or has developmental trauma in general, like schools across the board? So I have to start with
1: what is the school's role in creating the culture of our country? Mm. Because if you go all the way back, civil rights certainly was on a roll, but when it really started to impact every state was what? Brown versus Board of mm-hmm. And then, you know, that got rid of separate, but very not equal. Mm-hmm. and really advance, because then what happens is teachers are working with children who don't look like them and learning about lots of other different types of people and then raising children who understand lots of different people and so on and so on so i humbly submit and i will back it up and defend it to anybody who wants to challenge me teachers change the world mm. schools are our nation's gatekeepers so mm-hmm. predominantly every child born in the United States has to go through the schools. Now they don't all go public. Some do a private, sure. some are homeschooled, but the majority of children walk right through the public schools. If you want to shift culture, it's the schools that does it. And thus, my mission, you know, to create trauma informed schools. The role of the school is if you teach the teachers, you heal the world. Mm. I my first book came from Theo who really said to me, Mom, you have to go help all the other kids. So I first thought one kid at a time, that's gonna wear me right out. But right so I said he said, Mom, you know, we learned, you studied, but what about all the kids whose mothers don't have the financial and or intellectual capacity to do what I did? Right. And that's of course teachers know this. Right. We you mentioned at the very beginning, children who are in unsafe places mm-hmm. have been Abandon in those unsafe places when we closed our school doors. I understand Mm -hmm. there wasn't a whole lot of choice there. I'm not saying we shouldn't have, we didn't have a choice with the pandemic, but we have to go find those kids now. And I spent a lot of time in webinars with schools. You know, what do we do with the Go find them, go find them, knock on their doors. I, I found kids by honking my horn again. No, you don't want to put yourself at risk by going in and put the kids at risk by going in the homes, but come out on the porch or the front yard and wave at me, talk to me from there. I need to know you're okay. So there's a lot of school districts out there doing that now, but that's the point is when you tell the teachers about trauma, when they start to understand it, there's the early research in trauma informed schools that's been going on five, six years uh, started in Washington state. Um, They're really showing a change in um, intergenerational poverty because if you create resilient kids in a K-12 trauma-informed school, they raise more resilient children.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: Regardless of the home they lived in while the school was trauma-informing them and building their resilience. Right, right. So it's it's a proactive way to get at this. The problem, and and I am a big fan of all of our community services. I live in New Jersey in a county that is very resource rich, and I love these folks and and talk about frontline heroes that they are doing, but only if the family comes to them in most cases.
0: Mm -hmm, Right, correct.
1: Again, even though you have all these great social workers, you have child find services, you have protective services, um, social agencies that help women who aren't safe, but the women have to go there.
0: Yeah,
1: we see it all march right through our doors, which is why I think we more than anything else can change the world. And the teachers and the teachers unions have also been very instructive in um, moving Washington and, you know, legislation.
0: So what does a trauma sensitive school look like? I love Chris
1: Blodgett's um, definition. Um, it seems to be getting lost. I, I wish he would promote it more. He's a professor at the uh, Washington State University, so he's not into promoting his own brand. But if he were, because he's created trauma-sensitive, trauma-informed, trauma-focused. People are turning and using trauma-responsive. I would go with no. Well, okay, yes, step one. Responding to kids in high crisis in a trauma informed way, certainly do that, but trauma informed schools are proactive because you can't always know the children sitting in the chairs who might have trauma. So Chris Blodgett's definition, trauma sensitive. um, People kind of know like, well, there's this thing, trauma, right? Maybe something about the ACEs survey, Uh, trauma informed. Well, now we're actually starting to put programs in place at different tiers of our school to interventions to support kids. Trauma focused from the curriculum on up to every single club, there's an understanding of how these things support children who may have trauma and doing away with some of our long held systems that hurt children, not only children with trauma, but hurt all kids. So I aspire to the schools that I work with to help them become over time trauma focused. It is a culture shift and it takes a long time A more immediate framework that I use from SAMHSA is what's called the four R's of a trauma informed organization, which certainly works in a school. Everybody has to realize the prevalence of trauma. I am like Dr. Ann and Dr. Folletti, a big, huge fan of every adult in this country needs to find out what their A score is because you can double the longevity of your own life. But if you know your A score and are getting help for that, you're going to raise more resilient children. So there's so much to that work. So everybody, adults, adults in the school need to know about ACEs. You don't talk to kids about their own trauma in school. That's not what I'm saying. Then you recognize the impact. And that's where teaching teachers comes in. But every school has a system for teaching their teachers. And they need to know the new brain science because most of them did not get it in college. Um, That's starting to turn. Some schools started with master's programs. But I think it's going to be built into um, your child development class that every teacher has to have. And then um, you need to start to respond in a trauma informed way. So that's the third R. And the fourth R is to resist re traumatization because we have to stop doing some of
0: the things we did based on old science
1: because we thought it was what we're supposed to do for kids.
0: Okay, I love this. So, first of all, for any of my listeners that doesn't know about ACEs or the ACE survey, it's advanced or it's adverse childhood events. And I love that you are saying uh, that adults it doesn't matter if you're a teacher or not adults working with kids should be doing their own getting their own aces score so that we know you know where we are uh and what work we need to do we talk all the time on this podcast about it starts with self-awareness and how Mm -hmm. what you're bringing to the interaction so i love that um i will i would like to link do they have free aces surveys and Tess? acesconnection.com. Aces Connection. So I will link to that, and I'd also like to link to a resource that describes the the four R's uh, for any trauma-informed organization because because that's huge. And I I know that there's a lot of um, parents or service providers that just wish that the organizations, the other organizations that the child that they work with, were trauma-informed. Um, mm-hmm. And I know as a case manager, I so often, like part of my job as a post-adoption case manager was just going into school. The parents had the worst time with the schools. They were getting called in every day. The kid was at risk of getting thrown out of the school. And the behaviors that were happening were, you know, he's destroying the bathroom. He's ripping little pieces, you know, very typical dysregulation behaviors. And I would have to go in and say like, hey, so, you know, just teach some like attunement. Where was he? At eight in the morning? You know, were there little signals that he needed maybe a, a check-in or a walk down the hall? So all of this though adds, takes a willing school, takes a very committed staff, takes a holistic team. So what do you suggest as far as um, which staff members are doing what? And I'm sure that it's a very interconnected team. But is there a role for the counselor, a role for the teacher? I mean, if you're talking about going and checking up on some of these kids, I know that recently, my husband's a teacher, so I do know that they have sent the resource officer out to actually put eyes on kids that haven't been checking in virtually or whatever. So who who navigates whose role is who in this uh, trauma-sensitive environment?
1: Okay, so I call it the reading revelation. I train, at sometimes, you know, thankfully, a school district will put 70 people in the room. So I say oh, to all these K-12 teachers, counselors, school psychologists, administrators, raise your hand if you don't think reading is important. Mm-hmm. No one does, because we all know as educators whether I'm a reading specialist in, in an elementary school or not. And then raise your hand if you actually teach reading. And the elementary school, teachers will, by and large, even all the way up to fifth grade, raise their hands. But the high school teachers don't raise their hands because they're not teaching reading. But they will tell you that if a child has below grade level reading struggles, then it becomes their struggle. Mm -hmm. So they understand this. So I say to you, yes, that trauma-informed schools is not the next thing you have to do. It's the only thing you have to do. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? Kids cannot do anything else in school if they can't read, but they can't learn to read if they have trauma that goes unmitigated. So it's, it's even more important than that. You know, if if you are trying to teach kids who are starving, you are completely wasting your time, feed them first Mm. because all the greatest curriculum in the world can't work if the child is dysregulated or hungry or tired. And you know, the the behaviors you were describing before, when you understand the brain of a child who's not gotten what they needed, because it's not always that someone's hurt them. It's that they've had separation and every foster and adopted kid on the planet has been separated from their birth mother for whatever reason. And so that separation can manifest itself into destroying the bathroom. So Bruce Perry, I love it. His, my favorite thing he says, you have to name the monster to tame the monster. So we can't teach reading if, and Anden and Filetti were the first ones to say this, half of your class has trauma. And we have to shift from, well, no, parents aren't hitting this kid. No, oh, that's great. That's good. But that doesn't mean they don't have, by our Bessel Vanderkolk's definition of trauma, childhood trauma. And so recognizing it changes the way we support the child, and then they become learners and they stop wrecking the bathroom, by the way.
0: Sure. So, how do we recognize trauma? How do we? Are these kids getting uh, Aces scores? Who's doing those? Um, and then if you do find, like, yeah, this kid's uh, this kid is not getting their basic needs met. This kid is dealing with some neglect or dealing with some abuse. I mean, right now, as far as I know, you know, you make a mandated report, and things may or may not get, you know, taken care of uh, in an appropriate manner. So. So if we're thinking, okay, this kid's going to need attachment therapy or this kid needs X, Y, and Z. So what if we have reluctant parents or parents that aren't really, you know, they're there, they're not going to get their kids removed, but they're not going to be engaging in that. It feels like the school can't hold it all or can they? Yes, because what
1: you're describing is a response to a child you know has trauma. Mm-hmm. The brain research is very clear. If you, I have this metaphor I use when I train ducks and lions, just because it it helps people see the proactiveness of this. So if I were to give you a duck and a lion, whether you had any training in animal husbandry or zoology in your backyard, you'd put a fence with a lid for your lion and you'd get some kind of kiddie pool for the duck. That would happen like first day, mm-hmm. right? Doesn't matter what else you know. Sure. You're using your common sense to know. And it doesn't mean the lion is a bad lion. You're just respecting what the lion is. Right. So children who've gotten what they've needed since birth or conception, really, are ducks. Children who don't get what they need from conception, all the way up to 18, have the potential to become or be born lions, meaning their limbic system is growing in a different trajectory than a child that's a duck. Mm -hmm. Here's the beautiful thing. Schools need to create duck ponds and the the metaphor gets messy here, but duck ponds that are really good for lions, because guess what? If your classroom is really good for the most traumatized kid on the planet, your ducks are going to be fabulous. Mm. So I keep telling teachers, it's not about running around the school and finding the kids with trauma. Many of them will rear their heads on Mm -hmm. all of your lists. Frequent flyers to the nurse, harassment, intimidation, and bullying lists, absentee lists, tardy lists, academic struggle. Although keep in mind, a lot of kids with trauma don't necessarily have cognitive issues. Um, So it's not all your kids in special ed by any stretch, right?
0: Sure.
1: So then, you, if you start looking at that list of kids, you will find, the, I call it the achievement gap, the place where year after year, these kids are not making adequate yearly progress, academically, attendance-wise. Nine times out of 10, every one of those kids in there is a lion. The problem is that sometimes parents are really good at hiding it or they were separated, right? Something where it's a lovely family full of you know people who care. And it's a good thing. You know, Auntie moved in because mom died of cancer when he was four. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? That death keeps happening to that child. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's not just the one event. It's what it does to the brain that changes that child into a lion. And if the people don't raise a lion, what good is feeding duck food? Your, du- your lion will die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, again, metaphor, you, you can't feed ducks meat either. So that's a different thing. But sure. we have to create schools that are really good for lions. I strongly advise against giving the ACEs survey to any school-aged child. Okay. Because most of what happens, damages your brain and your psyche around trauma is the lack of control or choice because children have no choice over the neighborhood they live in, the violence going on out there, the substance abuse going on in their own home, right? So even if no one's hurting them, sure, they don't have control over these other things either. Mm-hmm. My son didn't have any control over ending up in a Bulgarian orphanage. Right. And so a lot of the the brain science and psychology is very clear that when you take away or don't promote the ability to make choices and have control over things, um, it breaks down and the limbic system breaks down and development is stalled. So if you ask, like ACEs surveys are yes, no questions like, you know, um, was your parent ever in prison? Um, Was your mother ever hit, pushed, grabbed or slapped? Well, we don't want to be asking children these questions right. because we're only re- reminding them of all the things they can't control. Right. So I teach teachers to begin to recognize that there's like a whole day of training where they start to get the idea. But I tell them, I'm a special ed director right now in a small school in Marstown. It's okay if you're wrong. Like if you're counting aces in your head, guessing. So what if you're wrong? Because okay. if you're going to provide a trauma informed approach for that child who ends up being a duck, that duck is going to be magnificent anyway. Right, right. So you can't go wrong. So no, I don't think schools need to collect child by child adverse childhood experiences data. Um, it's not necessary because we're going to create a proactive approach.
0: I love this. Yes. I was totally going into how do you decipher which kids and then you need to treat them. And I was very thinking, very individualized. And we hear about this, you know, individualized plans of care. And it- but I love this, just like, you know, make a big pond that is okay for lions and your ducks will be better for it, your lions will be better for it, and you're, you're treating everyone uh, for whatever aces that there are. Okay, so, so teachers go, let's say they listen to this, uh, and hey, if you're a, pro- a service provider, if you're a foster parent, anybody listening to this podcast, go ahead and get an ACEs score. So now what do we do once we've got our ACEs score? Well, it's really for adults,
1: you want your ACEs score, but you also want, there's surveys out now based on the folks, um, some of the folks from ACEs Connection have spun off and created this thing called Origins Training. And the idea is um, your ACE score is only as good as your resilience factors as well. Because if you and I, um, our neighbors, right? And um, even the pandemic's a great ace to to look at in this way. Your parents both lost their jobs. You're talking to me out in the yard when we get together about, you think you're going to have to move because you can't afford to live there anymore. And um, there's a lot of stress in your house. Maybe mom and dad are fighting now because of the stress that happens. Uh, Meanwhile, my house, mom and dad kept their jobs. Maybe dad had stock in Zoom. So we're moving out too, but we're moving on up right? Mm -hmm. So um, the same pandemic is an ace because we both had to come home from school. A lot of kids had to leave their their beloved little stuff in their desks. So we had some loss around the pandemic. We had some fear about, we still, part of what's affecting adults is when, when will there be a vaccine? What will the world look like post-vaccine? So that isn't, it can be an adverse childhood experience, but I have resilience factors you don't. Mm. So I have parents who are still doing well. I'm being fed. I'm not lying in bed at night worried about where we're going to move like you are now. So the ACEs pile up for you around this pandemic and they don't for me. Mm. So this pandemic's probably not going to impact me into my adult health. I minutes mean, it's because I have resilience factors, protective factors Um, around me. So when you start to count up a child's ACEs, and this is what we do with my staff all the time, we start counting up ACEs, and then we start counting up resilience factors. And there's actually a survey. Um, And if you, ACEs Connection, you you can find resilience surveys.
0: Okay.
1: Because they want you to not just count your ACEs, but how much resilience do you have? Because Mm -hmm. that will lessen the impact of those ACEs on your adult health. Sure. So if your resilience factors are not so high, but your A score is five, six, seven, eight. So take a look at your life. Do I have very successful and um, um, fulfilling relationships? Uh, do I have gut dis- gut dysfunctions? T- so common among people with high A scores because it's your stress response system. Mm-hmm. Um, so heartburn and um, lactose and gluten intolerance. Please, not everybody with a lactose intolerance has high A score. But um, that kind of inability to process things over time um flirting with substance abuse or maybe having a full-on substance abuse or anorexia or bulimia or overeating or you know what's what's going on with you. And so if you have an ACE score over four, five, six, whatever it is that's happening to you, you want a doctor that's ace informed to treat you, whether it's a psychological treatment or a medical treatment. Wow. Um, and then yeah, you you can actually turn back time. And restore your longevity by treating your ACEs. But we need doctors and psychiatrists who understand ACEs. And Dr. Nadine Burke Harris is on that. She's the Surgeon General for the state of California. And she's starting to require ACEs information and certification for licensing.
0: I love that. And
1: I think, yeah, so California is a pilot for this thing. I would love to see that woman like become the Surgeon General for the United States. I don't have any idea what her political aspirations are, but... Um, This concept of, you know, in order to be a doctor, you have to know about this. So, um, you know, I've had people say, well, what if my doctor doesn't want to learn about ACEs? I'm like, oh, fire. Any doctor you have that says I'm not learning anything new. Right. No, thank you. (laughs) Check, please. I'm going to go find a doctor who's really aggressively working to be the best doctor she or he can be. So I've asked all my doctors, two of which studied up and were all excited about it. And remarkably, two who said, yeah, I've been paying attention.
0: That is so cool. Yeah. And I could see, uh, I feel like the response would be, you know, you need to see a psychologist. Um, Not always. um, But I would hope that it wouldn't be because we're needing to see primary care be a bit more holistic, right? Um, Oh, my gosh. That's like so helpful. And like, I try and tell people all the time, even if you are not like, Right in the thick of it, you're not a therapist, maybe you're not even meeting with a kid once a, a week or you can do a lot for these kids and for this world by addressing your own stuff. and boy, you know the the world is rich right now for healing. <laughs> for us to do our own healing. So I love that you have reinforced this message that it starts with us and it actually starts with us maybe touching some things that we were like, no, we just wanted to help somebody else. We didn't want to have to shine a light on that stuff. And it's like, it kind of starts there because how can you help somebody shine a light on their stuff and heal their stuff if you're resistant, right? So I totally, absolutely love that. It needs to
1: be a requirement for um, foster parents that there's work being done. CASA is aware, you know, um, in New Jersey, we have something called the tri county services. The, there's three large counties in New Jersey, um, that kind of work together and share and pay attention to each other. Um, and so the tri county CASA supervisor has built it into the training for CASA so that you understand that that, that you're, you're dealing with lions, right? And so then helping the schools changes the conversation. We've now, because of CASA, we're getting some um, JADs and some of the judges aware of this and it completely changes the way you respond to the child. But I, I would just love to see, I'm sorry, you can't be a foster parent until you take this two hour course where you learn about your own ACEs and you make sure you understand because every single child in your house doesn't matter if they have three or ten aces. Every one of those kids is a lion, by virtue of being in the foster care
0: system. So you said uh, without taking this course. So is there something beyond the survey that people can take to actually make meaning of their results? Well, there's, there's not. I
1: mean, I, I suppose there are some things online. Um, there's probably some webinars out there. Um, ACEs connection is definitely the place to find that stuff. Um, sure. okay. Michael Knight, giving him a big plug. Um, if you Google him or look him up on ACEs, he posts a lot of stuff. He's got a lot of free yeah. stuff. Um, my books, ACEs survey alone is only one way to look at it. Um, you mm-hmm. really need a little bit of what, it, what it does to the brain and why ACEs will make you sick as an adult. Um, in order to properly heal yourself and to
0: recognize it in the children that you're working with? Well, now I'm getting so interested because, uh, you know, Stable Moments is a mentorship program. It's a community. We train community mentors to work with children who have early developmental trauma. And I always talk about awareness, what you're bringing to the work, you're being aware of what triggers you in the work and how to work through that situation. Okay, great. Now I'm hearing you, and I'm like, this needs to be a requirement of mentors. This is this is what I could do more to move the needle on healing and uh, better interaction between these kids and, and their mentors. So, so now I'm excited because this feels more tangible, and you know, telling somebody to be aware to develop their awareness. That's why I mean, it's hard. You don't have to tell me I work with
1: teachers. And <laughs> one of the things I, I always start and end with self-care, like whether my training is one day or six. And so I, I start with them. And what's most important to you? I know maybe if you have kids, but seriously, you need to be most important to you because you can't be there for the kids if you become unwell. So what teachers do, though, you touched on before. Compassion satisfaction is a real thing. It's measurable. People who get into the work you and I do have a high level of compassion satisfaction. We're very motivated by helping others to the point where hormonally induced serotonin when we help others. Well, that's great. So I can just help the heck out of everybody and I don't have to look in my own closet. Mm -hmm. So teachers are full of, no, that's great, but you're still helping others. And when you ask a room full of helpers, what they do for themselves, it gets very quiet in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, or they're like, well, I, I go to Aruba. That's nice. You go there every weekend because self-care needs to be preventative. You got to put stuff in the bank. You know, you got to take care of yourself every day. So I teach them about that before I do anything else. Mm-hmm. And then I bring it back there at the end. And so helping them, under, first of all, understand what self-care is what does mindfulness m- mean? You know, the fact that don't tell me you can't get to a gym. Whoever said that's the only way to take care of yourself. You know, I haven't been to the gym for 10 years because now thanks to some YouTube videos, I can do yoga and Pilates in my house,
0: you know,
1: <laughs> but um, so helping people actually understand what it means to take care of themselves. And then I always push administrators, you know, to set a, a system in school where they are provided with time for care and held accountable for it. So we have faculty meetings. We have this thing called the happiness challenge. And every like twice a year, we do this little calendar. Everybody gets a, gets an email of the calendar. It's all these to take a walk in the woods, kiss somebody, you know, just a whole bunch of 30 days of fun stuff. And then at the end though, we have a faculty meeting where we sit together. We used to sit together and we used to eat too, but we we did do it virtually at the end of last school year. And you have a self-care buddy. So as an administrator, it's like, find a self-care buddy and make sure you email me your buddy by the end of the week. So I know everybody's got one. Uh, and then you can sit and talk to yourself and they're laughing and they're cracking up because they did or didn't do. And then there's some whole group sharing. So now as an administrator, I have really said to my staff, no, I'm not kidding. This matters. We're going to take time and you're going to take care of yourselves. And then mm-hmm. I tell administrators and then guess what? I need less subs because my attendance doubles, my staff is healthier. So yeah, you wanna know what the financial payout is of trauma informing your school? It's unbelievable how much money schools are saving as they become trauma informed. Out of district placements, slow, that's a slow needle, but it moves because we're healing kids in our school. Because like you were saying, it's not just the counselor. When you, when the math teacher and the PE teacher and the art teacher and the nurse and, and the folks in the front office and the custodian all understand the lions, the counselor finally gets to do what she or he was hired to do, take care of the crisis kids. Okay. Because there's always going to be crisis. Life happens to our kids. But finally, they have the time, the energy to really pour into these poor kids who really are in the middle of a crisis because the rest of the school one caring adult. Every single kid in my school has a care. We measured it. We checked on it. Every single kid has a caring adult, somebody they're tuned into. And over time, it might not be a teacher I have anymore, but I still have lunch with her once in a while. She's like, Hey, I see you. I'm checking up, you know, how's it going?
0: Yeah. And that's like with the mentorship thing, uh, our program runs 10 months and then you can re-enroll the next semester, but or the next year. But that, I know the one caring adult is so important and s- sometimes stable moments can be uh, a mentorship relationship that that maintains even if the kid moves, uh, schools moves, because that can be difficult with foster care. But yeah. what you're talking about here, oh my gosh, like everybody that get not everybody, but a lot of people that get into teaching, helping, service, nonprofits, social workers, they're broken people or they have had a the hurt people had a past they're hurt people because they have such deep empathy for what it is to have that pain that they are like I'm not going to let this happen to another person so they go out so we're so our field, the helping people is so rich for, and especially foster and adopted parents. I mean, they can take on kid after kid. And I do this to myself. So I'm not calling anybody out, but self-care a lot of times will look like, okay, guys, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm getting a pedicure. It's been six months. You know, it's like, no, you don't, run yourself into a wall and then give yourself an inch and then run yourself into a wall and give yourself an inch. And I think that that is, we have this weird, like uh, we we're guilty about building in really daily weekly self-care items, things that really work for us so that we can show up to our work. It's also important to understand that that
1: happens to us culturally. That's not anybody's fault. If you've ever heard, I, I watch like My Guilty Pleasure is House Hunters, international, local, Mediterranean. I watch it all. I love it. So you always hear when they move, particularly outside of the United States, you know, the, the values of the family are more important here than they are in the U.S. Sure. We moved to Australia, moved to Canada, we moved to Spain because it's family first. Mm. And I've spent some time, luckily, in some of these countries, and it's very different. And my sister-in-law lives in Switzerland. She was first in Luxembourg. She's never coming home to the United States. She's like, I'm I'm not giving that up. So as Americans, I don't know where that started, but it is very much I feel guilty, or there's something wrong with me if I need, you know, mental health care. Mm. And that's that's the United States. Like I, I we maybe It's one of the good things to come out of this pandemic. And you can start seeing it in the commercials now. Yeah. Like Coca-Cola is running this big thing about family time and how we all got so much of it. So I hope that Coke keeps running those commercials long after the vaccine, so we don't start the treadmill back up. Sure. But so yes, exactly. Taking care of yourself. And then guess what? And women, oh my goodness, women believe in yourself and take care of yourself because then you will raise powerful, capable women. I love it. So if you don't model, like my kids, you know, that they are, maybe they've gone, maybe, maybe the needles pass the other way that they're so good at taking care of themselves that <laughs> sometimes they don't get up and cut the lawn. But, you know, I, raising Theo, we were, we, not only the, the wall, you know, we'd fallen over the cliff a number of times. So it wasn't, can I keep going? It's what's going to happen when I can. And so then that's when I found the attachment trauma network um, and I still work with them, but they were like, wait, 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 you know, you, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And so I, and my husband and I both sometimes for a long time was tag team. We didn't vacation together because we couldn't leave Theo with anybody, but one of us. But, you know, I went, my sister was kind enough to take me to South beach for four days and just transport myself. She's like, we're going to party. I fell face down on the bed and I pretty much didn't get up for four days, but my husband then started to do things. And so my kids are very used to this concept of, you know, yeah, I'm going to go do this for me.
0: I, yeah, we raise better kids. We need it. I know. I know. Well, that's, I, I say all the time that I, uh, I strive for my goals and I chase my dreams because I'm not going to tell my son, you can be anything you want to be and have him look at me and go, well, why aren't you, you know? So we do, we need to lead by example and that's in every way. So anywhere you're going, I don't want this for my kid, then make it true for you. Right. I love it so much. Okay. So say I'm a teacher, I'm listening to this podcast I'm like, yes, I need this to be a trauma-informed school, and I am ready t- for this to happen tomorrow. Are there like three things you can do tomorrow to make your classroom um, trauma-sensitive or small basic things that people could implement that would help make a, a pond for lions? My um,
1: first book, shameless plug, but seriously. No, go ahead. Because,
0: we want to hear. You know, it-
1: Melissa is not making anybody read an 800 page book. None of my books are any bigger than this, which is why I have a bunch of them. So this it's Theo's 20 things. He wishes teachers knew. Mm. Um, So you're going to back up today's conversation in a really simple, and there's definitely stuff in here. So dear teacher, do this in your classroom. Mm. I will also say counselor one person can make a difference as long as your expectations for yourself are realistic. So no, one teacher cannot trauma-inform the school by herself. And the sad thing is a lot of counselors are and social workers are actually getting more of this brain stuff in their degree programs. And they're coming into the school with we have to be trauma-informed, but nobody knows what that means. And if you can't get even one more person who then gets one more person, um, I've seen people burn out. Yeah, of course. So, because if you are really trauma-informed in your classroom, and then, and I, this is just an example, phys ed teachers, please, this is a fiction, and then you are picking your class up from phys ed, and the phys ed teacher is screaming at your lions, Mm. and it's going to take you the whole rest of the day to pull them down off the wall, that wears you out because you understand the damage that was just Mm. done by that person who doesn't know any better. So you have to find a person who will join you and a person. And at the end of the, my whole doctorate was around what do teachers need to create trauma-informed schools? And I really was looking for you know um, professional development and what tools they needed. And they all did say that, but guess what number one was? Every one of them put as their very first and most important thing, a, a, an administrator who understood. Hmm. because administrators have all the time and money. Honestly, I say that as a joke. They don't have any time or money, but right. they can start to control what the time and money is spent on. And then again, I would say to principals, start wearing down your superintendents because sooner or later, you know, you can't keep suspending kids time and time again who are lions. Weapons and drugs are separate, but I'm saying for these, you know, you turned your hat sideways or you said the F word. Suspension hurts kids. Yeah. It hurts kids as clearly as rounding up your kids with peanut allergies and telling them all they have to eat peanut butter until they get over themselves. Mm. No one would ever do that because that would hurt kids or kill them. Right. And yet there's as much research around the damage caused by abandoning our children because that's what they feel through detention or suspension. If kids aren't doing what you want, you need to teach them to do what you want. They're not doing what wrecking the bathroom because they wanna ruin your day. Right. At that point, that little boy who's now pulled the paper towel rack off the wall three times, that's all he has. Yep. So to say, Billy, that's it, you're going to detention for he's gonna sit in detention. Who's teaching him to manage his dysregulation so he doesn't need to pull the paper towel thing off the wall? And yet if Billy couldn't read everybody on the planet would be helping Billy learn to read. Right, yeah. So why then is behavior their fault?
0: Yeah. Well, and sitting them in that room afterwards and saying, why did you do this? And them saying, I, I didn't. And then and then being accused of being a liar. And maybe they have no clue why they did it or that they even did it. And they were so dissociated. I mean, ugh. So I I get it. Brahma-informed
1: um, teachers trained my beat. Don't ask why they say, how can I help? Hmm. How can I help? You, you you, pulled the paper towel thing off. You frightened three little boys in the bathroom who are now afraid to go back in there. So we have to work on this because it's not safe for you. Hmm. So what's going on, buddy? How, do, do we need, you know, have you tried a silicone sponge? Do you like to hold on to putty? Let's talk about how you can regulate yourself and then it won't build up and you won't need to pull the paper towel rack off. And then after a week, it's like, check it out, buddy. You didn't pull the paper towel rack. Woohoo. You know, big party. I love it.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times those things could have like, had he had maybe a ball to sit on in the beginning of the day, you know, there was like four hours of obvious dysregulation building up before. So teachers are trained, you know,
1: what was happening when he did this. Trauma informed teachers don't ask that because the trauma could happen when I was three right. and it's still rolling through my head at eight. And so no, nothing did happen. Right. It's what happened right before this. And that was my, my behavior mod. I was always looking for the antecedent. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we may never know what the antecedent truly is for some of our lions, nor may they ever know right. because vessel van der Kolk in the book, the body keeps the score talks about your body knows everything that happened to it since conception yeah the problem is when you're one two three four years old and people are harming you you have no language for what they're doing so that memory just gets stored without words right which makes it very hard to articulate right so that means they don't really know what happened to them
0: right and there's no way that you're gonna like keep a log of all the triggers and avoid them all nope we just <laughs> keep telling kids we love them and we're here to
1: help them no matter what they've done. There's an old, old. it's old and we need to stop doing it. Um, you know, if we don't punish them, they won't learn. That's like saying, if you're a witch, you should be hanged, right? Thankfully, we move past that. Yeah. Because it's ridiculous. Well, I'm going to tell you right now that if you read anything around the trauma science, read Bruce Perry, read Bessel van der Kolk, You're going to understand why that concept of, well, he has to learn, consequence, discipline thing is garbage. It's simply look at all your data in your school. Find all the kids who have been suspended or given detention. Guaranteed, they are also the kids who have been given suspension or detention again. So it didn't work. So why do you keep doing it? Mm -hmm. Well, partly because they don't know what else to do. So I respect that finding other things to do. But first you have to be able to say, he, he completely trashed the bathroom. Hopefully he's gonna work with the custodian to maybe repair some of that mm-hmm. after school. Um, but so we need, he's hurting. No, he should sit in here. It, no, you have to let go of that. That's, that's like Salem witch trials, really. Like it's, it's that old in thinking. Yet I do understand that it gets ingrained in people. They don't know how it got ingrained, but there it is a part of their, the way they see the world implicit bias really is kind of what it is.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and we have all over America things that we call planning rooms. They used to be padded rooms, and now they're planning rooms. And these planning rooms where it's like, the kid's gonna come up with a plan for next time how they're not gonna destroy the bathroom. No, not unless you teach them about their brain and should because that's the thing.
1: First of all, every school that I work with learns, you know, what do we tell the kids? You Tell the kids about their limbic system because everybody's got one. Yeah. So we can all learn about this. Ducks too, it's a good thing to learn about your limbic system. And then we have all these systems we teach about, you know, how to teach kids, high school kids. What happens is when kids start to understand how to regulate themselves, then they hold on to the ability to access language and then they can maybe make a plan. And depending on their chronological age with you, who's going to help them with what a good plan might look like.
0: Okay. So you've inspired me. I'm like, yes, this needs to happen. So how is it happening? How are you seeing the progression of schools becoming trauma informed? Are you seeing that schools are becoming trauma informed? Um, how, you know, how quickly is that being picked up and, um, and, and how do they, if they are all on board or a few people at the school are on board, how does it happen?
1: It happens lots of different ways. There's definitely top down, but there's also grassroots and both work. Um, again, eventually you're going to need time or money, but, um, there are states, Pennsylvania, um, has, and Massachusetts have grants um, that all public schools can apply for, for the training and whatever else you need to create trauma informed schools. So when your state department is giving you money that motivates more people, to try to become trauma informed, uh, Wisconsin has a um, their Department of Public Health is very invested. So there's conversation at a kind of a um, congressional level um, in Wisconsin. Uh, whether that's factored down to every public school, no, it'll get there, but it's taking time. Then there are places, you know, there are still a lot of states in this country where corporal punishment is not only legal but there's a group of people that meet every year to remind ourselves how we slack kids. Mm. So they're going to need a lot more work than just money to understand that a should never hit kids that aren't theirs. And quite frankly, you shouldn't hit your own kid, but it's not a perfect world. By the way, perfect parenting is trying not being a perfect person. So there's brain science, mirror neurons, kids know when you're trying. Mm. And as long as you're trying, you're raising a great kid. But same thing is true for teachers. Kids know. Theo says it. He, You know, when when he knew, he had this one teacher in eighth grade. She was brand new. She was kind of a little afraid of eighth graders. She really wanted to be a fourth grade teacher and didn't get a job in an elementary school. And he kind of knew it. And yet, because she was trying, he even said to me, Mom, I, I couldn't. I wanted to lose my coal, but the poor woman's really trying hard. And I don't want to make her cry. (laughs) This my, my dysregulated son, right? Crying really matters to these kids. They can tell. And it doesn't mean you're perfect because apologizing and trying again matters. But so definitely communicating with kids. You have this limbic system. I have it built into my health and PE program now, so I don't have to keep watching it. It happens automatically. Um, kids learn about their limbic system. They get the language for it. Schools need to help kids regulate. And again, it's not just a glitter wand in the counselor's office. We need these things all over the school. Um, so training, definitely read, read some books. Um, there are, there's conferences, attachment trauma network has the biggest national conference in the country for educators by educators. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's gonna be really inexpensive this year because it's virtual. And um, so you can go there to um, Creating Trauma Sensitive Schools, all that together, backslash conference, um, and read all about our conference. But there are others. Um, Again, virtually is nice now because we were in Atlanta last year. You don't have to travel anywhere to be a part of these great um, workshops. Um, definitely I would read a book, like if you're into the psychological side of this, Bruce Perry's book, the boy who was raised as a dog, mm-hmm. um, the brain, I geek, I'm a big brain geek. I love it. So I love Bessel van der Kolk. I do. I love him and he knows it, but, um, I love his book. The body keeps the score. Both of these men, incredibly, really smart guys who can write books that people with no medical background can understand and articulate. Another one that doesn't make the top of the list all the time and should that I'm reading is Louis Casolino. He wrote a book called the social neuroscience of education, Mm. which sounds very scary, but again, it's not, it's, it's a big book, but the whole back is appendix and indexes and stuff because he wants you to be able to use his work. But um, he really breaks down this brain stuff, but then how kids learn and why trauma impacts not even the cognition, but being successful in school. Um, so I, I love his book too and yep. my book, my books are shorter, but all of those books.
0: Well, I'm going to get all the links uh, to your books so that mm-hmm. I can link to them in the show notes. Um, So if you, like, say for my county, I wanted to go to the school board or I wanted to and just say this is something you really should look into and I wanted to advocate for the, you know, countywide to implement this. Is there a succinct webinar, a, you know, something, a video that's like, please, you know, watch this so that you get it? So
1: we just created they. I assisted from far away. Um, this safe schools section of national school boards. So they've created a division and they understand not just safe schools are the doors locked. So they want emotionally safe schools. Mm -hmm. So that's where I come in. And so they're holding a safety summit mid September. Um, So there's a bunch of us talking about this kind of thing and a a, a school wide approach to it. I have also said um, that I will train, any school board anywhere, anytime for free, because I am a sitting school board member and I believe in it. Um, I know they have, you know, hour to two hour long meetings, so I can do a 45 minute, you know, public. I just either have to be virtual or I have to be in your state, um, to, to come and do it live.
0: That is incredible. And <laughs> that's a, that's a, well, because yeah. I think
1: if you tell school board members about this stuff, then let them find their own path. Yes. Every fool that's done this has done it by following because it's strength based. What do we do? Well, let's assess that and keep doing it and then look at other things.
0: All right. So for people that aren't going to go to the show notes, can you just say your website? Traumasensitive.com. Traumasensitive.com. Melissa, you are a trailblazer, a freaking <laughs> rock star. We need more people like you, and uh, you have so inspired me. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom and being so engaging. I'm like, you, I can tell you're passionate. When somebody's passionate about what they do, it's contagious. So thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. and thank you for what you do because mentoring is really it's all about relationship, and mentoring is the best way. To build relationships and one caring adult as we said earlier can make all the difference in a kid's school and then the adult they become and then the children they raise so thank you for what you guys do as well
0: oh my gosh what an inspiring interview i know that we ran long we're not going to do a typical outro this week because that interview ran a bit long but I just couldn't break it into a part one part two because I thought it was so good and I wanted to continue with the content so I hope you guys loved that share that with anyone any teachers that you think it would be helpful for talk to you guys next week